It's a real delight to be invited to come speak here um, and to make use of some of the resources of this remarkable place. And the, the handouts that are coming around now are from documents which are uh, the originals in this building. We may even see them at lunchtime, I don't know. Um, it also struck me, as uh, Clem mentioned in his introduction, I quite like to think of contemporary aspects and parallels to um, historical subjects. And it struck me very much in the last couple of days... Um, one, having my nail file confiscated at Newcastle Airport um, yesterday on my way down, so I'm much less well manicured than I would like to be <laughs> on a public occasion. Um, and the reason for the impounding of this dangerous object, the enormous security throughout the route down from Newcastle to, to, to Heathrow, um, and then the security at the other end, and under surveillance all the time. Um, also, this morning, walking from my hotel just underneath the, the tube, there's, a, there's a, kind of a lane, um, which isn't a road, it's just a lane, and, and that's at the end of it, by the, by the main road, there are these enormous concrete blocks that you see outside the Palace of Westminster, which are obviously meant to prevent vehicles with um, ill intent driving down and exploding outside what is, after all, a government or public building. Now, it's going much too far to uh, suggest that these are um, consequences or have been set by the First World War, but I think one can see very much, in all sorts of ways, the war setting standards and templates for how the state, what the state thinks it can do and what the state tries to do, um, and the extent to which um, opinion and public attitudes matter. Um, and as, and in, in this talk, I want to try and dwell on some of those uh, for a while. Um, I have under my remit uh, intelligence, but there's been, there will be quite a bit of overlap with uh, Stephen's talk, so I'll probably um, pass most of that by, other than to try and suggest that it's been quite a difficult uh, commission to prepare for because one can easily do a talk on uh, propaganda, a, a whole conference on propaganda, or indeed intelligence. To um, bring them together was, was quite a challenge. I think I've managed it, but you'll be the judge of that uh, rather more uh, than I will. Um, the propaganda that we're familiar with is um, some of the. Well, I beg your pardon, we've got the wrong, we've got the wrong slide here. Um, yes, I think I've got the wrong. Sorry, this is the wrong PowerPoint. This is a really good start. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, I'll persist with... Um, what should I do? I'll persist with the PowerPoint <clears throat> I've got, I think. Is that the one you put on? Um, I think there's more than one version on there. Do you happen to have... Do you have the... the oh, I forgot. Sorry about that. Um, I was working on the PowerPoint until quite recently. Uh, there's a better one than this. It's quite a challenge. I never could manage as a child or an adult patting my head and rubbing my stomach at the same time so now I've got not just slides but also handouts and extracts and a talk to try and master um, so we'll see how I do um, right. yes thank you very much, could you just see if there's a, a more recent PowerPoint on that slide there um, so what, what I'm really asking here is um, the relationship between propaganda and intelligence uh, and how much there can be seen to be a relationship between them. Um, can, can you see the, the dates on there, possibly? Sorry, Martin, that one was empty when they opened it upstairs. Oh, right, okay. That's not that one. <laughs> this isn't a recruitment uh, speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Give it if you'd like, I can do that. It's <laughs> off of my head. Um, Yes, so, um, and what I've come to the conclusion is the way in which they seem to relate was the way in which intelligence served a purpose for propagandists. 
It provided the material, the purpose behind um, what propagandists were concerned with, and I haven't got the size I wanted, but I'll, I'll try and improvise. A bit like the war effort, one has to try and improvise, uh, despite the best laid plans, not surviving first contact with a computer. Um, so, um, what I'm concerned really with here is about emotional attitudes, and the way in which emotional attitudes are... Um, targeted and felt to be important by the state and by the authorities. Uh, possibly for the first time, uh, as Clem said, my interest really started in 1914, so I'm happy to be corrected in earlier periods, but this strikes as being the time when um, the state sees a role for itself and sees a role for public opinion and public attitudes much more than in the past, and perhaps for the first time also has the means of influencing them. We are, we are moving into the period or the realm of mass communications, and in all sorts of ways, the things I'm touching on, I think can be seen um, today as much as the concrete blocks uh, themselves. We have the ways in which intelligence can provide for psychological warfare rather than merely um, hard power. We have what we now know as, or think of as soft power, as Joseph and I described it, about ideas, about attitudes. Um, and there are structures too. I won't go into the structures too much. We've had stuff about the intelligence already. But there are ways in which um, the, the, the state, in all sorts of ways, the state, um, there's some planning. We saw just now some planning in terms of the Committee of Imperial Defence. But there's a great deal of frantic extemporisation and the creation of structures and committees and organisations which proliferate and then are closely uh, organised um, by the end of the war. And in many respects, by the time of the Second World War, many of these processes are up and running because they've been pioneered in the first conflict. The phrase I like very much to think about is as a term called covert belligerence. I'm concerned here with covert belligerence, about the waging of war by often uh, unspoken or by um, unostentatious means. Um, and so it's maintaining uh, emotional attitudes, a commitment to the war, which is very important for, uh, for the state, um, and so my talk will be much more about that rather than a kind of narrative account of what happened uh, in, a, in a kind of undergraduate sort of lecture. We're concerned with marketing the war. We're concerned with how the support for the war was encouraged. Um, and what's striking, as we'll see as I go through the talk, is about how much of it was voluntary. Um, we have a liberal state fighting uh, what we now call a total war. These are very simplistic terms, but I'm using them for the sake of brevity. Um, a liberal state fighting a total war and ending up with a very militarised society with conscription, which is a huge battle throughout 1915 and 16 to come to conscription. Um, the Defence of the Rome Act, I mean, those concrete blocks um, by the tube are straight from the Defence of the Rome Act um, in terms of suddenly imposing um, restrictions on movement and trying to uh, ensure um, that uh, subversive forces are contained in various ways. Um, and finally... To my introduction, I think many of the, of the concerns of the war in a wider sense can be seen through the prism of propaganda and intelligence. I mentioned some already about the escalation of the role of the state um, and about public attitudes. Um, the first part then will be about propaganda. Um, and I'll give you some, some examples of what I mean by propaganda. Um, there are lots of posters which I would have shown you, some really beautiful images, lovely colourful images I've prepared of um, your country needs you, of uh, remember Belgium, of um, lots of images of women and children. And the gender dimension to violence is a very interesting part of this uh, phenomenon, uh, the way in which the violation, the you know, rape of women, the murdering of children, um, what's called sort of atrocity propaganda is very prominent um, and feeds quite directly from some of the novelists that Stephen mentioned and I'll be mentioning a bit later as well. Propaganda existed before. Um, 
one only has to consider the debate about free trade and protection before the First World War, or the faith debates about uh, schooling uh, in the Balfour and the um, Campbell-Bannerman administrations. There had long been propaganda from interest groups of various kinds, but not quite in this way as far as the state was concerned. In 1914, state control of propaganda was minimal. Um, it sought much more cooperation rather than control. Again, we have this tradition um, in Britain of not seeking to impose things, of, of not quite a, a market or a laissez-faire approach. Again, this is rather simplistic, but certainly an idea of cooperating rather than commanding or eliciting cooperation rather than commanding. Voluntary participation is a very important part of the government's view of propaganda. And, it, and there are many examples of this which I mentioned as we go along. Um, government is assertive when it needs to be assertive, when it needs to counteract, as it sees, German efforts in this area, when there's the need, the very real physical need, to cut German cables under the Atlantic, for example. So, assertive when required, but ideally having a more voluntarist approach to these things, which, as with the economy, as with labour relations, as with conscription, becomes more assertive as the war passes. Many of the points I'm making are contingent on the stages of the war. And we've already had mentioned the idea of the war being short. Uh, and by 1917, concerns about the war being successful and about public attitude being maintained for the war. So these, these concerns are very much conditional on the, the, the period and the point in the war where we find ourselves. The first um, significant development in terms of the state role of propaganda is the most well-known one, which I'll mention in more detail in a minute, which is Wellington House. Uh, which was the uh, War Press Bureau um, and Buckingham Gate. In fact, this is my first slide. I went there hoping to relive the history of this uh, <laughs> tremendous um, building and, and to touch uh, almost the dust of the, um, of the, the, the state at war. Unfortunately, it's been demolished. Uh, I mean, now this rather um, undistinguished uh, office block in its place. But Wellington House was there, and one of the most important people in Wellington House, I'll, I'll carry on with the slide, was John Buchan. Uh, the novelist of 39 Steps, which came out in 1915. Uh, John Buchan uh, became, this, this is why I'm including this, with my next photo, the next slide was my favourite photograph of John Buchan. It's a totally um, unnecessary one, but I quite like it. Um, he became uh, Governor of Canada um, several years later and um, found himself not entirely comfortably by my eye uh, in this particular uh, garb. <laughs> um, he, more on this later. Um, we also have um, the Neutral Press Committee. Under G.H. Mayor, we have the Foreign Office News Department coordinating news in allied and neutral countries. We have Northcliffe, uh, who took over the Enemy Propaganda Bureau. Where's Northcliffe? Do I have Northcliffe? There he is. There's Northcliffe. Um, these are quite dull slides. They're just black and white pictures of men. Actually, that's why I wanted some nice colour ones to enliven it for you. Um, I'll, put, I'll have it on the website later on if, uh, if, I, if I get the chance. So? So? We can get it at lunchtime. Yeah, we're we'll trying to do it at lunchtime, yes. Where you're having your sandwiches, you can watch the slides. Um, the War Office Director of Military Operations. I won't go through all these in detail because it can be quite dull hearing one body, another body. I'm just trying to point out this proliferation of committees and organisations trying like mad to keep on top of the war effort and to try and counteract what they see may be uh, German um, efforts in this, in this regard. The Department of Propaganda in Enemy Countries. This all comes under what we call the Department of Information in 1917. So this is what I mean by this, all these, this proliferation of often competing and contradictory organisations brought under one remit in the Department of Information in 1917. Um, and then after that, the Ministry of Information in 1918. This is how the state, and this is what we can see in this building when we go through the archives of these institutions, the state taking a, a real form and organising um, and commanding where, where before there had been... Um, 
disruption and um, a, lack of, a lack of coordination. Uh, Ministry of Information is under Beaverbrook, um, who, as we know, as the proprietor of, um, later was more of a proprietor than this time, but a hugely dynamic character, a person fully aware of the importance of opinion and of owning opinion and of seeking to use it in the interests of the state. I'm going to spend a few minutes now on um, the War Press Bureau, Wellington House, because this is where I, this is, I find this particularly interesting, because this is a way in which um, the prism I mentioned, you can see, in a way, this is part of the early uh, efforts in the war, in the sense that it seeks to use um, opinion through art, through literature, through um, creative people, creative forces, rather than more direct forms of seeking to influence opinion, which comes later. So we have uh, Erskine Childers, as we mentioned, in, in the build-up to the war. We have William Lequeux, who is... Uh, I had a very nice uh, map of the queue had from the Daily Mail serialisation of his invasion in 1910. And what's remarkable is, I mean, it's easy to laugh at the mail or cry at the mail, <laughs> but certainly when we look at the, the serialisation, what you notice is so much of it did come to pass when the war started. The bombing, I've been doing this work with the BBC uh, World War I at Home project um, for the North East, and the map showed how Hartlepool and Whitby would be bombarded, and of course they were indeed bombarded and we're now spending a lot of time uncovering the experiences of people um, in those areas. But certainly building a, a, a sense of public disquiet, such that Vernon Kell, who we've also had mentioned, and I had the same photograph of Kell, so I've avoided that at least, um, <laughs> Kell um, responded in part to these concerns in his desire to create the um, forebears of MI5. The spy fever that takes place when the war starts is something I spent a lot of time on when I did my work on McKenna, who was Home Secretary when the war started, uh, and was absolutely a character buffeted by the demands of the tabloid press, by parliamentary opinion, um, by the sense that not enough was being done, that people with funny accents should be impounded and sent to Olympia in Black Mariahs, um, that um, McKenna, but like Haldane, Haldane, the person who did more than anybody to build up the army and the territorial army, McKenna had German education, spoke German, these suspicions about Germanness. Of course, one reason why the royal family overnight becomes the House of Windsor in 1917. Um, so the Wellington, Wellington House then um, uses um, novelists, uses creative people in, in the interest of the state without directing them. Of course, it'd be like herding cats to try and direct novelists what to do. But the first thing that um, uh, Masterman does, Charles Masterman, who's given the role of running... Um, uh, at Wellington House, is a friend of Asquith's, is he invites in September 1914 some novelists around, and it's remarkable, it's like a kind of uh, wartime hay festival when you see who was invited, and who turned up, in fact. Uh, Conan Doyle, Arnold Bennett, Ford Maddox Ford, G.K. Chesterton, John Galsworthy, Thomas Hardy, Rudyard Kipling, G.M. Trevelyan, H.G. Wells, and more uh, turned up at that supporting office block um, to discuss the war and the role of the war. Um, and what Wellington House did was it coordinated their efforts. Uh, and by June 1915, it produced two million uh, items, pamphlets, postcards, uh, accounts of the war. There are several things here which I'll mention in passing. The first one was the Bryce Report, the infamous Bryce Report. I'll read you an extract from the conclusion of the Bryce Report. This was um, the full title of which was, if I can find it, here we are. Um, report to the committee on alleged German outrages. So they were good enough to say alleged uh, in this document. The conclusion of which states, um, from the following pages it will be seen that the committee have 
come to a definite conclusion upon each of the heads under which the evidence has been classified. It is proved, one, that there were many parts of Belgium deliberate and systematically organised massacres of the civil population accompanied by many isolated murders and other outrages. Two, that in the conduct of the war generally, innocent civilians, both men and women, were murdered in large numbers, women violated and children murdered. Three, that looting, house burning and the wanton destruction of property were ordered and countenanced by the officers of the German army that elaborate provision had been made for systematic incendiarism at the very outbreak of the war, and that the burning and destruction were frequent where no military necessity could be alleged, being indeed part of a system of general terrorisation. And the last point, four, that the rules and usages of war were frequently broken, particularly by the using of, the using of civilians, including women and children, as a shield for advancing forces exposed to fire, to a less degree by killing the wounded and prisoners and in the frequent abuse of the Red Cross and the white flag. Now, Wellington House um, published this document, which was enormously um, successful and popular around the world, um, and which pressed the point that Britain was fighting uh, a barbaric regime, that Britain was fighting for civilization and culture. And what better way of fighting for culture would there be than using artists and novelists uh, in the cause? Um, and the, the painters also were involved in this. We have uh, people like Muirhead Bone was appointed in 1916, uh, Francis Dodd, William Orpen, Paul Nash, uh, C.I.W. Nevinson. Uh, there's been a tremendous um, exhibition of World War I portraiture at the National Portrait Gallery. If you get the chance, do go along and see that. Um, also in Newcastle, the Lang Gallery, there was a, an exhibition with some really nice works by Nevinson. Um, one of the beauties of, of Buchan's, because um, Buchan was working under Masterman, one of the beauties of Buchan's instincts as, as a writer himself was to give free reign to these people. And so while we, 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 it's hard to say, impossible to say, the effect of the paintings in terms of propaganda, we certainly have really significant works of art in their own right. And I have some examples as well to show you, um, to illustrate my points. Um, we have also... Um, the Histories of the War being published, uh, Nelson's History of the War in 23 editions comes out, War Pictorial from December 1916, F 500,000 copies of each uh, edition were printed and sold. These are, these are mass experiences. And if you go to, uh, there's a beautiful bookshop around the corner from my hotel, um, the Q um, Secondhand Bookshop, I can't remember the name, near the Coaching Horses, where they have lots of these part works um, for sale. Um, they were hugely popular. Uh, in promoting um, the British position, not just here but overseas, abroad uh, as well as at home. Um, literary propaganda then was really important. Um, the Wellington House even oversaw, I didn't know this until I prepared for this talk, um, it sought to send a letter to every Catholic priest in the United States in 1917 and 1918, um, with a view, I suspect, I think surmise why they did this, because of the attitude possibly of of Irish opinion as to um, Britain's involvement in the war, um, trying to monitor and to keep a, a sense of American public attitudes. And the American view of the war is a really important one for, for Britain and for Wellington House. Um, there are films as well uh, which are made. So we have the beginnings of mass communications. We have the ability for the first time to actually have moving images uh, and for the state to assist in the production of these images. Two of them in particular, Battle of Britain Prepared and Battle of the Somme, were enormously uh, popular. Wellington House is also involved, not with censorship, but with seeking to um, cultivate or orchestrate opposition to those voices which are less supportive of the war. So people like uh, Bernard Shaw or Bertrand Russell uh, receive public criticism in a way which is not quite coordinated, but certainly encouraged on the part of Wellington House and on the state. 
Um, there are problems here, though, because what, what this is my point about the prism is the war goes on and success is um, not apparent and setbacks are more so. Um, the criticism that the Asquith government receives and that Liberal ministers receive uh, is also matched by the criticism that Masterman and Buckingham receive, that their, their approach is too hands-off, that their concern is insufficiently directive and um, sort of militaristic in their bearing, and they, become, they suffer by, by association um, and are demoted. And when the war's over, a bit like Harris in '45 with Bomber Command, they, uh, are not, they don't receive any honours. They're, they're rather shunted to one side and neglected for their role in the war. Um, a couple of other aspects I'd, I'll mention. Um, actually, first, before I do that, your first handout. Um, the handout you have, which is, has 157 top right. This is um, Buchan's document cabinet, where he proposes transforming Wellington House and the various committees taking place into a coherent uh, department of information. Uh, so this is a novelist writing to the cabinet, trying to create... Uh, so this is the, this is the two-page handout you have. Um, Propaganda, Department of Information, memorandum by John Buchan. Um, uh, just a few points. I won't go through, obviously, for time's sake. Um, it is, object is to sketch the machinery. This is the word machinery. Novelists can serve the machinery. We have opinion, attitudes, emotions, but we do need, nevertheless, the means of affecting them. Which, in the opinion of the writer, if properly worked, would carry out the wishes of his Majesty's government and get rid of the defects which have hitherto been conspicuous in our publicity and propaganda work. His first point being there needs to be one department <coughs> under a director. Um, and then this is my point about seeing the war more generally through, these, through this particular incidence, instance. Um, we would have two main functions. This is under paragraph one. Propaganda or the putting of the Allied case in neutral countries, and preeminently, of course, the United States, and the explanation of the British effort in Allied countries with the object of ensuring a wholesome state of public opinion. A wonderful phrase. A wholesome state of public opinion. We can only aspire to that, <laughs> even today. And at the same time, the direction of British opinion where direction is needed, so not just overseas, but also at home. Um, and it, it's, there's no clear sense of this. It, it's rather, it's rather um, incremental, rather sort of um, reactive. Um, the last point, I'll, I'll say in this because I could go on more, but I won't. It is not suggested that there should be any attempt to spoon-feed the press. Newspapers, as before, will be free to enter into direct relations with the different government departments. But the War Cabinet may desire to give a lead to British opinion, either by the confidential disclosure beforehand to responsible editors of some line of policy or coming event, or by the publication of some statement or other. This would naturally be done through the Department of Information. So very standard practices about uh, news management, which we see today and we've seen perhaps even more extreme forms in the recent past, uh, which we can see in, in, a, in a small sense through Buchan uh, and his um, document to Lloyd George, which is accepted. Um, the very, very last point, I could go on at great length about this, but I won't. At the bottom of the page, um, and here's one of the nice links between intelligence and propaganda. With regard to finance, as far as possible, I think it's desirable that the department should operate on secret service funds. Um, more of that if I, get, if I have time later. Uh, I wanted to mention two other things in passing, which uh, I hadn't planned on mentioning, but struck me as being quite interesting as I thought about this talk, and, and they are the role of academia and advertising. Um, not often uh, harnessed together, although you've seen one instance of how increasingly advertising and academia are with my Newcastle University recruitment talk. Um, <laughs> academics, and what use for academics, this is a very profound question. Um, academics are, from the outset, are examples of voluntary participation in the war effort. Um, and a number of historians in particular uh, stand up and write and publish and seek to be involved with war effort. Um, in September 1914, the Times published a, a letter with 52 um, 
well-known men of letters, it's called, um, with a government-inspired anti-German manifesto, and these people include Gilbert Murray and G.M. Trevelyan. Um, five historians at Oxford write a book called Why We Are at War, Great Britain's Case, which um, promotes the war effort, and OUP bring it out two weeks after submission of manuscript, which those academics in the room will be surprised to hear. Uh, presses can be quite so um, uh, prompt. Um, Arnold Toynbee wrote about German frightfulness. Arthur Killer Cooch, wonderful quote, this from a professor of uh, English at, um, I think, Birmingham. Uh, he, he, dis- he wants to fight Germany because he also wants to fight the dry chaff of German historical research and criticism. Um, so, you know, the, the war of the academics is extraordinary. Um, uh, Oxford pamphlets for the intelligent working man are being published. Um, James Hedlam, I can't go into detail, but lots of things he wrote um, uh, for Wellington House. I mean, actually being, almost being commissioned by Masterman and by Buchan to write scholarly work as a contemporary historian, you know, using sources available to us now, uh, but um, which um, means it's probably less useful as a, as a historical source than as a source of opinion at the time. Um, advertising, I, I found this very interesting, and I'd, if I had a different title, I'd go into it in more detail, was just how much the war effort or the British involvement with propaganda and opinion uh, has influenced advertising as a subject and as a discipline. Um, so much about public opinion and about seeking to um, assess public opinion in, in order to market things struck me, and I need to go further into this before pronouncing solemnly on it, and, and again, I'm happy to be uh, contradicted or to discuss it afterwards, but the, the basic concern with marketing, and this is why we have such extensive polling organisations now, was essentially to try and market uh, goods and commodities in a, in a capitalist system, um, and to ensure the best targeting of, of, of the advertising. Um, and there's a very prominent, Ameri- the most prominent American um, purveyor of public relations and marketing, Edward Bernays, wrote an article in 1942 where he uses the British propaganda effort in the First World War as a template for the American effort in the second, and indeed uh, for marketing and public relations more generally. Really interesting, um, the fact that he made this, and I mentioned very briefly some of the conclusions he draws in this article, which is called The Marketing of National Policies, Study of War Propaganda. Uh, He says there are six factors which were essential in the British war effort in terms of propaganda, and should be for the Americans. One, fasten the war guilt on the enemy. Two, claim unity and victory in the names of history and deity. Three, state war aims. In the last war, the Germans failed to do this successfully. The Allies made successful counter-propaganda out of it. Security, peace, a better social order, international law are given war aims. It's clear from 1917 onwards about how important the League of Nations is, or the notion of a League of Nations, um, after the war, and how so much of the propaganda of British propaganda in Germany is about the ways of trying to regularise relations between nations after the war and having structures where before there were none. Four, strengthen the belief of the people that the enemy is responsible for the war with examples of the enemy's depravity. Five, make the public believe that unfavourable news is really enemy lies, which is wonderful, wonderful trick if you can pull it off. Anything that goes wrong is because of the enemy's lying about it. This will prevent disunity and defeatism. And the last point, six, follow this with horror stories. The story of the Turk who sits before a tub full of his captive's eyes was first told during the Crusades, which is like before my period of confidence. <laughs> an example of how these things are never entirely new. Horror stories, says the author, should be made to sound authoritative. All of these things, he contends, were successfully manufactured or managed during the war effort itself. Um, right, uh, intelligence. We've had quite a bit on intelligence, so I won't uh, go into it um, in huge detail. Um, other than to say that... Um, 
it's clear that there's a, a sense of a, a, a connection. It's, it's unstated. That's why I'm sort of fumbling slightly. It's not clearly stated at the time that intelligent propaganda can work together very well or that they have clearly defined purposes or, 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 or natures. Um, Vernon Kell, who we've had mentioned, um, was concerned with public opinion because public opinion, if it becomes less supportive of the war, could very easily um, sort of develop into opposition to the war or subversion in some way or another. And so it's really important to keep... So what's going on, basically, um, which is, of course, a debate we, we, we have to contend with um, in the present day. Fears of revolutionaries, fears of saboteurs, um, much like the spy fever uh, before the war and in the early stages of the war, um, were really uh, profound. And rather than dealing with the, merely with the press, one had to know what the public was thinking. Um, he wanted to make sure that, um, that leaks, treason, sabotage were all monitored and somehow uh, responded to or dealt with. And all sorts of bureau were created uh, to deal with these concerns. Um, as far as opinion is concerned, um, foreign labour notes are published. So there, there's, a, there's a desire to know what's going on amongst the industrial workers in France, in Germany, in Spain. Um, there's evidence that the Germans are seeking to foment um, industrial unrest in the United States and in Russia, uh, and of course we see the consequences ultimately uh, as far as Russia is concerned. So British are concerned very much to find out what's going on. Um, and also um, using this to engage in psychological warfare itself. So I've got two extracts very briefly to mention. Uh, the first one uh, comes from a document uh, prepared for Cabinet by Edward Carson, who I did have a copy of Richard Carson. There he is, Edward Carson. Um, um, called A Psychological Offensive to be launched at a well-selected psychological moment. Uh, and, and his concern here is that uh, a joint manifesto should be written, introduced by the Allies to the peoples of the countries with which we are at war. This is, this is the, really the manifestation of the League of Nations as a kind of um, propaganda effort. Uh, promising something better for the future. And I'm not, not promising uh, penury if Germany is defeated, but promising a hope of a better future. Um, and it mentions things like... Um, she has realised with increasing war owners, increasing opportunities offer themselves for psychological operations in countries of the Allies as well as in neutral countries, and that lack of military success may be counterbalanced, if not more than counterbalanced, by a psychological triumph. So the obvious absence of, of genuinely successful military news in the middle of 1917 could be counterbalanced, Carson suggests, and this is one of the most militaristic, combative people you could possibly hope to meet, Edward Carson, uh, by psychological triumph. So the use of opinion as, you know, this covert belligerence as part of the war effort. I could go on, but I won't because I'm overrunning it slightly as it is. Um, the handout, next handout you have, um, the one-page handout I refer to now, which is concerned with uh, the government's worries about public opinion here and about the suspicions of, um, of a lack of satisfaction with the war effort manifesting itself in various ways. It's a much longer document. Also here, it's a Cabinet 24-4 um, and I've, I haven't included the other parts because it's too big. But the rest of the document contains detailed reports of all the various organisations and groups and newspapers uh, who fund them, what their purpose is. Um, he says here, third paragraph, this is George Kay of Home Secretary. Um, uh, third paragraph, the question of taking more drastic powers to deal with the growing propaganda in favour of an immediate peace on terms favourable to Germany is, I think, a pressing one. So again, it's my point about contingency with the stages of the war. Um, it's not a mass phenomenon, but increasingly, and certainly within Parliament and amongst many of the intellectuals I've already mentioned, there's uh, an increasing desire at least to discuss the notion of a negotiated settlement. 
rather than the, the knockout blow that the you know, increasingly sort of belligerent rhetoric of the Lloyd George government is um, advocating. So far as the propaganda takes the form of meetings and speeches, it is in a fair way to be dealt with. There's a strong public feeling against pacifist meetings, and these meetings were not prohibited in order to provide contribution for peace, are usually unsuccessful. So it's kind of it's managing itself because there's no genuine mass support behind it. However, he's concerned with pacifist literature, where further powers are required. Um, I, I won't go into detail because of time, but his basic concern is that by naming and shaming those concerned, um, it will probably have more effect than seeking to ban or prevent things being published. As in the Second World War with, with bombing, which I've worked on, the, the view was, I mean, some Harris wants to ban things all the time, but actually some sensible heads like Portal say, well, no, I mean, there's no, there's no point, no one listens to them anyway. The publicity from you banning things is much worse than actually letting them just be unread. Um, and after all, what are we fighting for? That's the other point, which is a very powerful point, of course, for a brave point as well for someone to make in the middle of a war. Uh, we're fighting forces that do suppress things. Um, lastly, Cave says, it appears to me that the mere existence of such a power... Um, such as naming and not should I say naming and shaming, but publicising those who produce these things, will be a strong deterrent, and in the case of all newspapers, with a good circulation. Um, so again, it's a, it's a kind of a, rather than a rather than using a hammer, it's trying to use a stick rather. It's seeking to use a carrot rather more. So even at this stage in the war, there's a, there's a slightly there's a more subtle approach to um, uh, fighting the war than one might otherwise have expected. Um, so that is a political groups in Britain. Um, cabinet wanting more and more intelligence as the war goes on, wanting to know whether Germany will collapse, wanting to know whether Germany is, is a part of mutiny. Um, the best example, and, and Stephen very helpfully mentioned this for me to mention in more detail, not much more detail, the Zimmerman telegram uh, in 1917, which um, is the kind of thing you couldn't make up, um, most extraordinary thing, where fortunately the British uh, had intercepted a German cable uh, to their, their man in uh, Mexico City, um, saying that, and I'm not making this up, saying that um, in the event of United States entering the war, because Germany's about to declare unrestricted U-boat warfare in the Atlantic, so that's a pretty good chance the Americans will be entering the war, um, you can have Texas and um, New Mexico and Arizona uh, in the final conflagration, and we'll provide you with, with military support and finance to help you. Now, of course, this is, um, I don't know how it happened, of course, purely by accident, but this is leaked to the American press, uh, and a week later the Americans were in the war. Now, it's going too fast, and that's why they're in the war, but certainly it creates enormously... So the Zimmerman Telegram is, a, is the, the best single example of how propaganda and intelligence came together and worked enormously uh, in um, British uh, interests. Right, what else do I have to mention? Um, I've mentioned that one. I've mentioned this. I won't mention those because uh, of time. Other than just yeah. some conclusions now, some concluding comments. Um, and I've come to several conclusions. I mean, they're not really conclusions in the sense that this is now the answer, but just some thoughts which I can sort of try and organise my thoughts around. Um, first one would be that the disagreements, there's, there's constant kind of, this is very common in British government, um, territorial disputes between who does what and who gets the financing for what and who runs what. Um, and between the Ministry of Information and the Foreign Office, there are constant sniping and complaints about who's in charge. It's quite interesting, when I was looking at House of Commons debate over the George Cave memorandum that I just handed out, um, the Speaker keeps overruling questions, saying that's for the um, Home Secretary, not for um, the Foreign Secretary. Um, but members of Parliament don't know who's responsible for these things either, because there are no clear de definitions of what constitutes intelligence propaganda. Um, the, notion, the question being really, if it's really, if it's really useful to have intelligence for the propagandists, maybe the Ministry of Information should be running it. But the Foreign Office, conversely, think, well, it's actually it's more important for us to be able to help define, define policy abroad as well. So maybe it's a Foreign Office matter. 
uh, and when the war's over, it goes to the Foreign Office, actually. Um, two, um, Buckingham's department was, um, although that was independent nominally, it was pressed upon enormously by the Foreign Office um, because it wanted very much to influence opinion abroad. Um, it wasn't felt to be, until later in the war, domestic opinion wasn't felt to be as, as a priority, as much of a priority as opinion abroad. Um, and also, not just assessing it, but seeking to influence it. Uh, three, um, again, would work better with the slides, the conscious use of gendered violence is really striking, very, very striking uh, in this period, um, making it, the war's being marketed as a kind of a response to crimes against women and the family. Um, and some of the, there's a Dutch illustrator, whose name I've forgotten, but I wrote it down, it's quite a complicated name, I have some illustrations as well. He um, draws the most lurid um, photo, drawings of um, women, the dead women and, and of sort of sexualised violence and so on, which Wellington House publishes in various forms. Um, and which is very good. Now, this, of course, isn't made up. I mean, Edith Cavell, you know, these, some of these appalling things did happen, and again, there's a slide on her in my earlier presentation. Um, number four, rhetorical exaggeration or, of the gutter press, which one expects uh, in these times of conflict, actually found some validation in official publication. So that the, the, and this refers to the, the document I mentioned about from Buchan about the desire to influence the press by giving them pieces of information and letting them run off with it. But you don't require, you don't have to encourage Northcliffe or Riddell at News of the World to go off and create some sensational story. They do it of their own uh, volition. Um, Five, the appropriation of culture. Uh, again, I had illustrations of this about how Germany is, um, you know, ironic terms about German culture and about how Britain is, you know, by using novelists, by using artists by seeking to promote the, the, you know, a plural, diverse culture rather than this militaristic one. Some wonderful cartoons in Punch. We had one in Stephen's presentation. Um, some of my favourite ones that usually involve sport or cricket particularly, how the Germans would play cricket uh, and you see them marching out to field and using a howitzer for bowling and you know, just not getting the spirit of things in quite the same way. Um, and wonderful, it's all very sort of, you know, self-congratulatory, um, but very amusing. And this kind of stuff comes across in all sorts of ways uh, in the period. Um, propaganda, the, the knee-jerk response is to say that propaganda is another word for lying, a euphemism for, for untruths and misleading people, and I think that's far from the case, certainly in this period. It's much more multifaceted, much more nuanced, much harder to pin down, actually, than um, that notion of propaganda as being uh, a synonym for um, falsehood would suggest. Um, seven, um, give, given the, 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 the prominence and the energy of voluntary organisations, there wasn't much need certainly early on for the government to do very much as it happens and that's quite a nice I mean again it reflects, reflects the, the um, mass recruitment into the armed forces at the beginning of the war reflects the popular support for the war and as that popular support starts to dim when the war itself goes on longer and goes less well than we planned we start to see a, a, a you know, greater uh, involvement um, on the part of the authorities um, eight um, it's pretty clear I think probably this is something Bernays points out Propaganda really only works when it's reinforcing existing attitudes. Um, and for that reason, um, if it diverges from common sense, if it seems to promote something which is clearly isn't true or um, is obviously inflated, then it not just loses, loses public confidence in that piece of propaganda, but for the entire process. So it's learnt fairly on that it's got to be with the grain of believability and plausibility rather than seeking to say that black is white, for example. When it coincided with... Um, public opinion, it had really a real force though um, it's hard to measure these things because we don't yet have as we have with mass observation in the second war or with polling now 
a very reliable way of assessing public attitudes. We can use newspapers, we can record public meetings, but there's not, nothing as systematic as we would now have. And indeed, many of those systematic measures are themselves the product of marketing developments um, since the Second World War. Uh, what I think we have is the, a very important early example here of the use of mass media. Um, this nascent, this burgeoning phenomenon uh, to manage or seek to manage public attitudes. Um, and the very interesting way in which policymakers, some quite hard-headed characters like Carson, who's still up on the screen, I'm sorry for that, um, hard-headed characters like Carson actually recognise that this could work where more traditionally hard or um, um, sort of violent methods uh, don't. It could, be a, it could be a counterpoint to a lack of military success. Um, and also more effective... Um, sentiment more effective than using legal or philosophical arguments. Um, the use of sentiment very important. This is, I think this is what Buckingham got immediately by using artists and using novelists in this way. Um, this is very effective in the US. Um, it's very clear by reading people like Bernays and more widely how well regarded the Allied war effort is and how easy it is for us in this country to assume a kind of amity with the United States. In fact, if you know US at all well, it's much more ethnically diverse and complicated than the notion of being an Anglophone country, merely an Anglophone country would suggest. And there are huge uh, ethnic groups in the US which are not necessarily or even ever going to support a British war effort, uh, which seems to be managed in various ways. And so it was quite, a, it was quite well done, as it was indeed well done in the Second War. Um, what was also surprising, point 11 I had here, um, there's only 12, don't worry, uh, was that... Um, it's all suddenly dropped after the war. Um, the the um, uh, Ministry of Information is sort of wound down and sent to the, military, uh, the political intelligence department to the Foreign Office, and that's sort of wound down. Um, the Empire Marketing Board does some marketing work in the interwar period, but everything sort of stopped and then sort of dusted off and resumed again uh, when the next war comes along, um, which is surprising given, again, this is, I'm, I'm going out of my comfort zone here, and I'm happy to be um, corrected, um, Given that many of the concerns during the war are of the um, fears of Bolshevism, of socialism, there's some very amusing definitions of socialism in the papers, um, and the threat of either to Britain and its way of life, um, and that these fears are amplified in the interwar period, it's surprising that these, these, many of these concerns with public propaganda are, um, are closed down, although in intelligence terms, of course, they're uh, increased. Um, and the last point, um, a kind of permanent state of preparedness, which we see from the Cold War onwards, um, and we've seen with 9-11 and 7-7 here, um, it's, it's going too far to say this is, this is clearly in the mould of the First World War, but it's, it's striking how many parallels I saw or felt, maybe you felt as well with this talk, um, between then and now, and between um, the desire to um, deal with a threat, an existential threat, um, by public opinion. Um, and a converse of that would be this wonderful quote, I'll end on this because this is a good example of sourcing. Noam Chomsky pops up quite a bit in the literature on this. Um, and Chomsky has written, he, he's quoted the Ministry of Information saying its concern was, quote, to direct the thought of most of the world. Uh, and he cites this favourably all the time because one of his big points is that uh, corporations and governments are seeking to influence the thought of the world. And it all started with the Ministry of Information with uh, old John Buchan. It all, it all began there. And I can't find this quote anywhere. So if you've heard of it, I'd love to hear it, and that could be a really nice way to end my talk. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.